Well, good morning, everyone. How you, how's everyone doing? Awesome. awesome. I heard mostly awesome. Now, I don't see a lot of familiar faces uh, that I would normally see sitting in the seats that they normally sit in. And I know it's because many of us are, are sick or have a sick family member or friend or whatever the case may be. Just by show of hands, who's been sick within the last two weeks? So we know who to stay away from after church. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But there are a lot of people out sick. So be um, praying for them. Maybe reach out to them if you see or don't see somebody that you normally sit next to or normally talk to um, as you come into church every Sunday morning. Now, today is Christmas Eve, right? Yes. And we got the kids with us. And I'm so thankful for that. And one of the things that uh, we were talking about in staff meeting this week is, is keeping it simple. Keeping this morning simple. Christmas Eve, right? I know that, that, there, that there's this pressure, you know, to make it incredibly nostalgic and give it all the feels and, you know, make it just like this or just like that or that church down the road is doing this and whatever the case may be. But I think that simple is better. Amen. Right, I don't think that we need all the smoke in the mirrors. I'm certainly not an entertainer, because if I was, I'd be a very bad one. So I have no uh, aim to entertain you this morning. But I have every intention to read to you the simple story of Jesus' birth. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and join me in Luke 2. And while you're turning there, I want you to just be thinking about this. I, had, I was having a conversation with a man earlier this week, and he was telling me about a, a drive that he and his wife went on. You know, they were running errands or doing whatever they needed to do. And sure enough, they're, they're passing by all these houses with Christmas lights and inflatables and all the things. You guys know what I'm talking about? So as they're passing one house, they see a sign that says, keep Christ in Christmas. So the wife looks over at the husband and is like, those signs, they make me laugh. What does Christ have to do with Christmas? That's exactly what he said. He was like, what do you mean? What does Christ have to do with Christmas? Now, as funny or maybe as astonishing or shocking as we may think that is in here, the reality is, is that we live in a, a culture, a point in time where um, it's easy to develop that question or to arrive at that question. Maybe not uh, directly, but maybe indirectly. Perhaps not in word, but in deed. What does Christ have to do with Christmas? Yeah, we're like, <gasps> but we don't think about it until we're sitting in church on Christmas Eve, right? Okay. So I don't bring that story up to dishonor them. What I bring that up to say is that we are in a moment where it is very easy to be distracted right? It's Christmas, Charlie Brown. This is what it's all about. And it's normally like family and friends and time together and doing good for your neighbor. And uh, I don't know, just all the things. There's a bunch of Christmas movies. You see it and they say it at every single one of them. It's Christmas. That's what it's all about. And it's like, not Christ. Y'all, do you see the same movies that I do? Okay. So what does Christ have to do with Christmas? That's what I want to answer this morning. And we're here in Luke's gospel, one, because it is one of the birth accounts or one of the, the stories of Jesus's birth in the four gospels. And again, this is one of them, but I like Luke's account and I like his account here. And 
And I like kind of the background of Luke's uh, story, the reason that he's writing. And I don't know if you've heard this phrase, I'm sure everybody in here has, if you haven't raised your hand, but seeing is believing. If you haven't heard that, raise your hand. Seeing is believing. Okay, we, we've all, well, Maisie, you're lying. <laughs> we have all heard that phrase, and if you haven't, you will. But seeing is believing. And we think that in the 21st century, that we live in an age that is incredibly demanding, that it's incredibly scientific. So if you, if you believe something, you better be able to prove it and quantify it and all the things, right, rationally and all, you know, all the stuff. But I think that we would be shocked to learn that the, in the ancient days, right, ancient time, uh, it was just as demanding that you needed to prove what you believed in with evidence. You needed to be able to justify it and quantify and prove, in layman's terms, that what you believed was reasonable and credible. And so Luke, he's writing to Theophilus. This is what we see in the first four verses of Luke's gospel. He's writing to Theophilus a uh, a Roman citizen, a governor, or excuse me, in the government, in the Roman government, and he's, and he's writing to him an account of Jesus' life and ministry, right? And so Luke, he was a traveling companion of Paul. He was a doctor by trade. What he does is he investigates. He, uh, he talks to reliable sources, and then he vets that evidence, and he vets those sources, and then he arranges them in an orderly manner and after critically evaluating them. Right, Luke, he's writing to Theophilus to show him the reliability and credibility of Christianity and praise God for it. He didn't just say, man, go watch a YouTube video. No, he did the research. He spent the time so that what he showed Theophilus proved reliable and credible, amen? We should be thankful for it because that's what we're gonna read this morning. And so he didn't just do this for the gospel that bears his name, covering Jesus' life and ministry, but he did this for the book of Acts as well um, that covers early church history, right, at least in the first century. So Luke 2, 1 through 20 is what we're gonna read. If you're there, say, I'm there. All right, Luke writes, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear." And the angel said to them, fear not, behold, or for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, 
Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we wouldn't overlook the simplicity of this account, that we wouldn't miss it this morning and treat it like something that we've heard a million times, even if we have, but that we would rest this morning, that we would stop for long enough to allow you to impress upon us the true meaning of Christmas, what Christ has to do with Christmas. So, Father, we pray that you would illuminate your word to us by the power of your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. All right, so what we just read, this is Jesus' birth, and what I like about it, just in the first few verses, and we're not going to spend too long here, but in, in, those days, or yeah, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, historical figure, that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Here in the first two verses, we see the historical setting. That puts this account in time, in space. Right, so it's not in a land far, far away from here in a galaxy unknown, right? It's, it's not that, no, this is here. These are people that you can look up in history. These are people that Theophilus could actually know and see and have studied, perhaps. So this isn't mythology. It's not legend. It's history, right? This is an account. It's not a story, and in this account, it's much more than just Luke 2, this little isolated you know, thing. Really, it exists in, in this longer narrative that extends all the way back to Genesis 3.15. So if you have your Bibles, look with me. Genesis 3.15. When you have it, say, I'm there. Oh, a little slower that time, huh? All right, we got one. <laughs> Amen, thank you. So after Adam and Eve disobeyed God, ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? There's a series of curses that happen here. And, and this is what he says to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From that moment on. Did you hear the promise there? The promise of a deliverer that would crush the head of the serpent and the serpent would only bruise the deliverer's heel. Adam waited for this promised deliverer. 
Abraham waited for this promised deliverer. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, uh, David, Solomon, the prophets, all of God's people. What we see in the Old Testament is all of God's people have been waiting for the promised deliverer. And then here in Luke 2, we see that promised deliverer come. This is much more than an isolated story that doesn't exist or is disconnected from what we see in Scripture. This is the promised deliverer that people, God's people, have been waiting on for centuries before. Are y'all tracking with me? Now, the reality is they did not see his arrival in their lifetime. Right? Abraham, or Adam, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Solomon, they didn't see the arrival of the promised deliverer. They didn't see the fulfillment of this promise. But when the fullness of time had come, Paul writes in Galatians 4, 4, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions or adoption as sons and daughters. Did you guys hear that? Waiting, never seeing it in their lifetime. But when the fullness of time had come, another way of saying, at exactly the right time, right? when the exact religious and cultural and political conditions that God the Father's perfect plan demanded, he sent forth his son. He wasn't too early and he wasn't too late, Amen. It wasn't random. It wasn't by chance. This story is about much more than a baby's birth. This story is about much more than the perseverance of two parents. This is about the beginning of the end of God's perfect plan. And he sent forth his son. Here's a reminder. Jesus, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, have eternally existed. Right? So, The son here, he sent forth his son, means that Jesus, he's the preexistent second member of the Trinity. And we know this in John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Y'all tracking? All right. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Talking about the Lord here. He has existed eternally with the Father and the Holy Spirit And here he is taking on flesh and dwelling among us, the incarnation of Christ. So God sent forth his son at exactly the right time, born of a woman. So not only was Jesus fully God, but he was fully man, right? Born of a woman. It emphasizes his full humanity, not just the virgin birth. Now it's miraculous, right? But that's not the centerpiece of the story. Fully man, fully God. And his sacrifice, uh, or for his sacrifice, to be of the infinite worth needed to atone for sin fully and finally, he had to be fully God. To take on the, the sin of all who would ever believe, he had to be fully man, and here he is, fully man, fully God, eternally existing, yet taking on flesh, being born in the most vulnerable form ever. A baby who needed to be cared for, nurtured, protected. 
This is how the Lord came, not as a king and a conquering ruler, but as a baby that needed to be taken care of. We talk about Christ's humiliation, right? And yes, the the cross was certainly humiliating, but just imagine the glory and the majesty that the scripture describes the Lord existing in, in heaven and as he exists now at the right hand of the Father, but stepping down like onto earth as a baby, taking on, like putting yourself under the law. Then on top of that, being crucified for sin that you didn't commit. This is, I mean, talk about condescending. It, it is absolutely uh, humility and love driving the Lord. And he was born under the law. Like all men, Jesus was obligated to obey God's law. Amen? Right? He didn't just do what he wanted to do. No, he obeyed God's law perfectly, unlike anyone else who has ever existed or will ever exist. We've been in Romans for a while now, and we should understand in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, God imputed or credited Adam's guilt to all mankind's account. That's the first great credit. Do you all remember when we talked about that? Okay, good, good. We're doing all right then. So he obeyed it perfectly. And it's by faith then, and because of Jesus' sinless perfection, that he was the perfect and the final substitute for sin. That's how he was able to atone for sin. So that second great credit The first is Adam's guilt or Adam's sin accredited or imputed to us. The second is Jesus or our sin credited or imputed to Jesus on the cross, right? He died in our place or in the place of all who would ever believe. The second great credit. The third great credit or imputation is Jesus's righteousness to all who would ever believe. See, this is the righteousness that you do not have and you could never earn. This is the righteousness that God's law demands. This is the righteousness that, uh, that is required for the forgiveness of sin and promise of eternal life. And you and I don't have it in ourselves, but Jesus Christ, who we see coming here in Luke 2, had it and purchased it, or purchased it for us. And that's exactly what he says next, to redeem those who were under the law. That word redeemed in the Greek, we've talked about it before, but it it was used typically to describe buying a a slave's freedom or a, a debtor's freedom. Somebody who owed a ton of money be sold into slavery and they'd work it off. But this redemption, this redeeming was buying them out of slavery. Right, so Christ came born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. We stand under the law's righteous demand. For all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Right? We've all sinned. We've fallen short. The wages 
of, of that sin is death, eternal separation from God, not just the physical death. And yet he's coming, Christ came, he came and died to redeem us, purchase us out of our slavery to sin, purchase us out of our slavery to the law or our bondage, if you like. He bought us out of that, purchased our freedom. And by faith, is how you receive it. It's not ascending some stairs. It's not memorizing some stuff. It's not giving the money. It is by faith and faith alone, amen? amen. So he died to redeem those who were under the law. That is all of us. So Christ's death, it satisfied God's justice and exhausted his wrath towards all who would ever Believe the debt is paid. Another so that, another purpose statement here. It's a henna clause in the Greek, but so that we might receive adoptions or adoption as sons and daughters. Because Christ lived the death that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. His death, burial, and resurrection paid the price that we should have paid. His uh, his sacrifice and the vindication of that sacrifice, everything that he said about himself, proven, proven through his resurrection, purchased our adoption as sons so that we might become the children of God. What does Christ have to do with Christmas? He's the reason for the season. I know that's like the cheesiest thing to say, but it is like the, the most serious thing that I hope that we get, right? This is why we shouldn't just forget about it. This is why we shouldn't get caught up in the family time. It's important, it's necessary, it's cool, it's great. But that's not the reason for the season. Or in the lights, or in the inflatables, or in the gifts, or in the giving, or in the, all these things. Those are all great things. Those are not the reason for the season, period. Christ came to provide salvation for sinners, for all who would believe in him by faith. The best gift ever. That's why we keep Christ in Christmas. That's what he has to do with Christmas. Everything. Did you notice in Luke's account that we don't see the snow and the Christmas trees and the lights? Not necessary, forget about them. Not saying don't have them in your home. We don't have them because we're a pain. That's another story, sorry. <laughs> what I'm saying is don't get wrapped up in the holiday spirit and forget what Christmas is all about. Because here we are, Christmas Eve, and it's the morning, and some of us are gonna go to lunches and dinners, and we're gonna wake up tomorrow, and we're gonna be with family members and friends and everything else, and maybe they're wrapped up in all the things that Christmas isn't. And we can remind them what Christmas is truly about. I'm not saying to be a Scrooge either. <laughs> but here's a great opportunity to remind them the true reason for the season, that our Savior came, our God came in the flesh and dwelt among us, provided a way for salvation. This is the beginning 
of the end. Amen? So we await a day where we will be with Christ for eternity. And when he comes, he's not coming back as a baby. He's not coming to, to provide a way for, of salvation. He's coming to usher in his kingdom. New heavens and a new earth. It's, it's victory, right? Victory formation, we're crushing everybody, running them over. Like the bulldog should have done, but... <laughs> running them over, destroying them for eternity. Then we will dwell with him and enjoy his presence forever. In the new heaven, new earth, there will be no more sickness, death, disease. Like it'll be so unrecognizable to us because our entire existence has been shaped by the corruption of sin. So don't forget the reason for the season this morning. Make sure to remind your friends, family members, and loved ones what Christmas is all about. Amen? Let's pray.